Welcome to Stigma's Toll, a podcast series to reduce the stigma of opioid use disorder through education. I'm Eric Clemenson, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor, as well as a graduate student at the University of Minnesota in the Executive Public Health Administration and Policy Program. This podcast will discuss substance use disorder, SUD, which is a technical term for addiction. Opioid use disorder, OUD, falls under this umbrella, but is specific to those who have an addiction to opioids, such as heroin, fentanyl, or painkillers. Each episode will have a topic introduced by me, followed by an interview with an expert on the topic. Now to the episode. The treatment modality, known as medication-assisted treatment, MAT, is the gold standard of opioid use disorder, OUD, treatment. These treatments have been shown to have the greatest success rates compared to any other OUD treatment, and have been around for decades. In America, the three medications that have been approved for MAT are buprenorphine, also known as Suboxone, methadone, and naltrexone. These programs have many benefits, including decreased illicit drug use, bloodborne disease, and mortality. For clients, these programs help decrease criminal involvement and increase mental and physical health, as well as social functioning. Similar to the concerns with some of the other programs, there is a fear that a program will increase crime in the area. However, this fear largely stems from the stigma of substance use disorder. These programs have been shown to specifically decrease violent crime along with other crimes, largely as clients do not need to commit crimes to get their illicit drugs. I was able to interview Sarah Joy Castello Feggi for this episode. Sarah Joy has worked in the field of substance use disorder since 2008. She has a master's in organizational leadership is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor and approved supervisor through the Minnesota Board of Behavioral Health. She is a certified brain injury specialist, has DHS approved training in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and has worked throughout her career with expecting mothers on MAT. She is currently a director of a medication-assisted treatment program in the Twin Cities. During our interview, She discussed how MAT is a best practice, which includes both medications for opioid use disorder as well as therapy. This combination allows people to achieve a level of stability in their life and reduce the harms associated with drug use. Some of these harms may include bloodborne pathogens, abscesses, overdose, and other injuries. She explained how every client has their own goal in terms of recovery and MAT is there to help them achieve that goal. This may be simply using in safer ways or reducing use, but not necessarily full sobriety. For some, they may use these medications forever as part of their recovery journey. She explained the two main medications used, methadone and suboxone, and why someone may choose one over the other. She discussed the benefits of these programs are more than just the medications, but access to resources, mental health, annual physical health screenings, and possibly, most importantly, connection. She discussed pregnancy and MAT, 
and how it's safer for someone who is pregnant and has opioid use disorder to be on MAT to reduce the risk of withdrawal, which can hurt the fetus, as well as reduce the dangers of using street drugs while pregnant. Stigma was a large topic of the conversation, including in regard to OUD, MAT, and the clinics themselves. Finally, we discussed a little about how COVID-19 affected the access to these medications and the criteria for taking home the medications to dose, versus coming to the clinic to dose daily. Now to the interview. Thank you so much for being here. Would you mind introducing yourself a little bit to the audience? Hi, I'm Sarah Joy Costello Feggi. I have a master's in organizational leadership and I'm an LADC here in Minnesota. I'm a treatment director for one of the medicated assisted treatment clinics here in the Twin Cities. I am also a certified brain injury specialist and approved supervisor with the Board of Behavioral Health. I've been working in the field of chemical health since 2008 up to currently. So it's been quite a long time. I've watched a lot of things come out and be popular and then fade away. But one thing that's held the same is opiate use disorder has just been on the rise over the last 10 or 20 years, I would say now. And so that brings us up to now where I'm here to talk to you today. Awesome. Yes. And thank you so much for being here. Like I said, yes, you definitely do come with a lot of expertise and a lot of experience. So we're very lucky to have you here to learn a little bit more today. So you did mention medication-assisted treatment. Do you mind expanding a little bit more on what that is? Yeah, so medicated-assisted treatment is a best practice where medication is administered along with other therapies, whether it's individual or group therapies, to help people achieve a level of stability in their life and reduce the harms as they grow in whatever they define as recovery. So that can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people, depending on their circumstances. But of course, it's geared towards hopefully the end goal being a more drug-free life, a healthier life, a more sustainable life, and definitely a more healthy existence where they're not exposed to harms that could be inflicted through IV drug use or unsafe using practices that could expose them to STDs or STIs, however you want to put it, along with abscesses or other injuries that could be inflicted through ongoing illicit use. That makes sense, definitely. And those are a lot of things that can be reduced, a lot of harms that could be reduced just by this treatment, it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. And people can really take it above and beyond. They don't necessarily need to just stop at reducing their use. They could take it all the way to their recovery zone and maintain on medication-assisted treatment for quite a long time. Sometimes folks grow old on methadone or suboxone as part of their treatment, and that way they can stay sober over the long term. Definitely. That's great. So you had mentioned that the goal is to reduce use or for some to stop use. Do you know by chance how many people are able to actually accomplish those goals of reducing and or quitting use? I would say that most people who come into medicated assisted treatment definitely reduce their use. For some people that could mean less each day. So if they would be using, let's say a gram a day, they might reduce that to a half a gram a day, Mm -hmm. or they might reduce their use to every other day or every third day. So definitely a reduction in use overall. 
a lot of people are able to move from, say, an IV drug user might move to a safer method of use, either smoking or sniffing the drug Mm -hmm. as opposed to injection, which is definitely a safer route of administration, considering all of the things that go along with IV drug use. And with the increase of fentanyl and heroin, or in all the drugs nowadays, it's in a lot of the amphetamines and a lot of the cocaines as well. Mm-hmm. If there's IV drug use, a lot of times they don't know it's in there. So reducing the use and eliminating the potential of overdose is really key. And as far as like people who actually stop using, I think it's a wide spectrum because some people mm-hmm. come into the program and they start on the methadone or suboxone and three months later they have stopped using and they're living their best selves and working their careers. And it seems like there's like a pretty big divide in that. It seems like there's like a, this is general, it's not scientific research, Mm -hmm. it's just observational. It's like 10% of the people who had come into the program do this really great recovery. They make their progress. They're free of illicit use. They find their career. They're living their dreams. And then there's the spectrum in the middle where they may not be 100% ready for all that change. So they float back and forth between using and not using, reducing their use, increasing their use. And it seems there's a lot of mental health conditions that kind of fall in that category. Mm. And then there's the folks who come in who, you know, maybe don't want to stop using at all. Their goal is to live a healthier life and have supports, and maybe one day they would be ready for that kind of change. So just reducing the use overall, reducing exposure, helping keeping them connected to services and public health testing and getting the health screenings each year and improving their well-being Mm -hmm. overall. Somebody to check on them as well. That's a big part of it is some folks in recovery don't have anybody and the counselors at the clinic are their their person, the one who calls them and says, are you okay today? I didn't see you. So that's a lot of value in that as well. Yeah, so much so. Yeah, I've talked a little bit before on the podcast about connection and how that is so important for everyone's health, but especially people trying to be sober and who are in recovery and everything. So that is super important. Mm-hmm. So going back to medication-assisted treatment, what are the different types that there are? I think the two most popular are methadone and suboxone, and then there's injectables that are coming out, naltrexone as well. I think most folks fall on the spectrum of needing a methadone or suboxone. There's an offshoot of suboxone called Subutex that if somebody has a little bit of adverse reaction to suboxone, they sometimes do better on a Subutex because it doesn't have all the anti-opiate medication in it as well. So those are the kind of primary, I would say, in this day and age medications. They're a little different in how they react to the body. And I think that methadone is definitely a little bit more heavy hitting, I suppose is the word, where it really fills up those opiate receptors and satiates a lot of the cravings and withdrawals that people have in early recovery, whereas Suboxone is a little bit lighter medication, usually People who do well on Suboxone aren't necessarily using a lot of medication. A lot of times it's more of like a Percocet or a Vicodin sort of situation where they have a little bit lighter tolerance, so they're better suited for a medication like Suboxone. 
kind of has a capping effect at so many milligrams, it makes it very challenging to hit those higher tolerance areas with that medication over a methadone that is definitely has more variables as far as dosage goes. Okay, gotcha. Meaning methadone, you can keep increasing the dose where Suboxone, you might not be able to do that. Right. Well, with Suboxone, it's my understanding that the max dose is around 24 milligrams. And that's kind of a ceiling effect where there isn't any more benefit for more of the medication. Whereas methadone, the averages of milligrams that you can receive are much, much higher. I think the highest kind of recommended dose is about 350. So you have a wider variant of being able to find that suitable dose for somebody who is struggling with their opiates, depending on their metabolism, whether they're pregnant or not pregnant, if they have medical conditions and all kinds of things like that. So it really does fill up that opiate, the mu receptor a little bit more stickily, I guess is the word Mm -hmm. I'd use. That works. Yeah. Sticks there really well, whereas Suboxone doesn't necessarily do that quite as well. Gotcha. Makes sense. Thank you. So you had mentioned how being pregnant might change things. Can you expand a little bit on what it looks like if a patient is pregnant and on methadone or suboxone? So pregnancy really changes the body composition quite a bit. The first thing that happens with a woman who becomes pregnant is her blood volume doubles and her metabolism increases Mm. to accommodate the potential life that she's creating. And so when that starts to happen, she's going to use up more of the methadone or suboxone that she's taking during that pregnancy. And what we want to avoid is mother or child going into withdrawals during that um, 40-week time period. So over the course of that time frame, she's going to go through areas where baby's growing faster, her metabolism's higher. So she needs more food consumption, which also is when she would need a higher dose of methadone and or a split dose to accommodate the growing baby and keep her from going into withdrawals in the evenings or in the mornings before she gets to the clinic. And I think it's really critical to keep the mother and the baby safe during that 40 weeks and coordination of care and all of those things have to go along with good dosage because they really do need a lot of support going through that transition. Not only are they working on a recovery, but they're also going through like hormonal and body changes as the fetus develops and comes to delivery. Gotcha. So you had mentioned split doses. What does that mean? Split dosing is when somebody reaches like a therapeutic dose of their methadone, and then we break the dose into two pieces. So the person would take one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And this is most common in pregnancy, but there are rare cases of people who are rapid metabolizers. Mm -hmm. And in those circumstances, it would be indicated to split dose them as well. So they have a little bit in the morning and a little bit in the evening to avoid withdrawals and during that 24 hour time frame. Perfect. Thank you. So you had mentioned possible withdrawal for the fetus. Is that not good for the fetus or how does withdrawal affect someone who's pregnant? So if a woman goes into withdrawal during her pregnancy, she runs the risk of, first of all, the baby being in distress. What mom is feeling, baby is feeling as well. So Mm -hmm. if mom is distressed, baby's going to be distressed. And if it's physiological like that, it can be pretty dramatic and could lead to spontaneous loss of pregnancy. And so it's really important to keep them stable and keep them dosing during that entire pregnancy. 
for a lot of reasons. We don't want mother using any substances off the street. Obviously, that's really dangerous. We don't know what's in the street drugs. Mm-hmm. So it could be mixed with any number of things that could be toxic to mother or baby. But it also could lead to overdose, which even the reversals with that is is dangerous when you're expecting, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we want to keep them dosing each and every day. And so getting them to the clinic and making sure they are staying on their dose and increasing as they need to throughout the pregnancy is so important for yeah. healthy and positive outcomes for both mother and child. It also reduces the risk of mother and child being separated after delivery as well. If mother is free of illicit use when she delivers a baby, she's more likely to keep that baby in her care than if baby is delivered and they is testing reactive for substances. So we don't want that either. Of course, that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like this is an amazing way to help people who are pregnant so that they can have a healthy child and keep the child. So, wow, very important. Yeah, yeah keeping mother and baby together are really important. <laughs> yeah, so much so. How have you seen MAT change the lives of those with opiate use disorder? I've seen so many success stories over the years. And I don't just mean like sobriety. I mean, mm-hmm. just better quality of life overall for everyone involved. I've seen people who are living on the streets perhaps, and they're happily homeless with their lives the way it is, and they're better able to access services for their mental health. They're better able to access healthcare services while reducing their use, being able to get connected with programs to keep them safe in the winter, and warming houses, and making more of a community connection than they were previous to being on a methadone program mm-hmm. or suboxone. We do have suboxone as well. So I've seen that for suboxone patients as well. And I've seen it the other way where people really dive into the recovery and their counselors and treatment directors, just like myself out there in the community, and they're still on their medicated assisted treatment. So Mm -hmm. it can be such a wide range of success. And it means so much to them all when they can start connecting with their family and making connections in the community again, their quality of life improves so much when they're not alone anymore they have someone to lean on for support. They have a warm place to make a phone call or set up an appointment with their doctor. It makes me smile every day. That's the best part of my work. That's <laughs> amazing. What I get to see because I'm just there as an observer in, in people's lives, you know? And going back to the connection factor too, and just being there to support people along the journey of recovery, whatever that looks like for them. It's so important. Yeah. Uh-huh. One of the fun parts of working in a methadone clinic is We get to see people when they're pregnant, expecting a new baby, they bring this life into the world and Mm -hmm. they bring the healthy child back to the clinic and share that experience with us as clinicians. And then we get to travel all the way to the end of life with people as well as they grow old and they're still on methadone as part of their recovery journey. And they eventually do pass on, not from their substance use, but Mm -hmm. from the things that life give us at the end of life, we all reach that door. And it's kind of a beautiful journey, everything in between. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, including life and the hopefully peaceful passing and everything. You have Mm -hmm. the whole spectrum of life. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. So how have you seen stigma affect those with opiate use disorder? I think there's kind of two parts to this. There's like the stigma of what people go through when they're using I feel like there's a lot of shame around that. And 
adversity that prevents people from getting care. I feel like the stigmas are really big in the access of services and then the historical rejection of methadone and suboxone as part of a best practice for care. A lot of doctors and treatment centers will not host or serve clients that are on methadone or suboxone or even somebody who's using opiates or IV drug use. It's a pretty common occurrence as they share their story of going to the emergency room for help and doctors will find that they have abscesses or injuries from their illicit use and patch them up and send them on the way without any additional referrals or medications to help them curb the cravings or set them up for an admission to any kind of additional support. And if we went in there with diabetes, we would get tons of support, right? Like if we had a, a diabetic seizure, we would get a ton of support and they would wrap us in services and teach us how to eat. And they don't do that for people who abuse opiates. They give them a little bit of antibiotics and turn them back out on the street without any kind of referral sources. I think that's like usually when people figure out that their substance use disorder is more than just a passing thing. Like they've reached Mm -hmm. that level where they're a little bit scared to even ask for help in the place that they have been taught their whole life is intended for help. Like they go to the emergency room. That's where we're supposed to get the help that we need when we're scared and we don't know what to do. Right. And Mm -hmm. here they're getting just go on, get out of here. Good luck to you. Here's some paperwork. Follow up with your primary when they may not even have that or know how to access that. I also think that there's a lot of glamorization, and I, I use that in a in a very nice way. But what the movies depict as an opiate use disorder really has changed the way that people view opiate use disorder. I think almost all the movies that I've watched over the last 10 years that have somebody using in it is either glamorized as something fabulous or Mm. they make somebody out to be kind of grimy or sleazy or a drug dealer or Mm -hmm. some fabulous rendition of what somebody who uses opiates is. And I think that this is internalized into a lot of our communities in a really negative way. If there was one thing I could do, it'd squish that because the people who are using opiates aren't that thing that you see in the movies or on the TV shows. There are there are sisters, our brothers, our cousins, our moms and dads, and they're everyday people just like you and I who ended up on opiates for one reason or another. And not mm-hmm. all of those reasons are deviant or glamorous as they make it out on the TV. And so when people do finally reach out for support, I think they're worried that people are going to think that they are that glamorized image of what they saw on the TV. That's their loved one. And I think that scares and separates people from that connection that you're talking about. And then they don't want to share. And so then they're pushed down deeper into the substance use. And as we talk about the connection and that you're going to connect with something, if you're not feeling connected with the community, they Mm -hmm. connect deeper with that opiate and less likely to reach out for help until they're ready or until they're willing to see how tired they are of the, the life that they're living and the Mm -hmm. secrets they're keeping. 
Oh yeah. The being othered and like those people and everything just adds to the whole lot of compounded trauma is really what it sounds like. Yeah. I really like that. The othered. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's all too common. Yeah, no, I've seen it as well and everything. And yes, everything shown on TV is usually far from the truth and feeds the stigma and the shame of all the clients, unfortunately, sometimes. How have you seen stigma affect MAT clinics themselves? Being from Minnesota, I would say the biggest stigma that the clinics face is the ongoing lack of funding. Like we're in the middle of an epidemic of opiates and the funding sources for MAT clinics hasn't increased in years. And they keep saying that they're going to increase the rates. It always gets stalled up. We need these resources. We need the clinicians. We need the nurses. We need people to help save people's lives. And yet we can't get funding. Other treatment centers are able to find more funding sources, but MAT clinics have always been limited in what we can get reimbursed for and how we do our services. And we want to keep it affordable because Mm -hmm. when people come to treatment, they need to be able to afford the care. And being from Minnesota, we do have great public health care system. And if you meet a certain income guidelines, you can get health insurance. But even if you have private insurance, we need people to be able to access services. So keeping the cost low enough that anybody can have access to come up with that $20 a day or whatever it is Mm -hmm. to get their medication as opposed to doing illicit things to get drugs. I would say that the other part of the stigma that affects MAT clinics is the kind of falsity that it's kind of a dingy place a hole Mm -hmm. in the wall or not a place that you would find therapeutic wellness. And and that's Mm -hmm. just not true. Having been to most of the clinics in Minnesota, most of them are brightly lit, beautiful places with very skilled clinicians, skilled nursing team, doctors, and the whole nine yards. And Mm -hmm. it has the ability to serve somebody and get them to the next part of their recovery journey. Yeah, that's too bad to hear that the rates haven't increased, especially with the cost of everything increasing over the years. That's too bad. Hopefully Mm -hmm. something gets done there quickly. I hope so. They keep saying that they're going to increase the rates, but yet the rates don't get reimbursed. So we'll see. I hope that they can keep up with the changing times. And that way we can expand services. Like we need to have more clinicians. We need more nurses. We need more people who are fighting this fight. Especially in the middle of this epidemic and everything can't be more important than it is right now. So what is the most important thing you want people to know about MAT? I would say that it changes people's lives so much. Even if it's just one day, one moment, one second that they get to have free of illicit use, reduce their use. It just changes everything about the way that the person is living. Mm-hmm. And if given the opportunity to learn how to not beat themselves up, so to speak, if given the proper therapies to kind of work through some of those beliefs that they have about themselves, about their world, about how they're living, I think that the fuller lives people get to live and it's pretty amazing. I I wish that more people were interested in this field of work because there is no time limit on a harm reduction approach. There's no 90 days. There's no 180 Mm -hmm. days. There's a lifetime of change ahead of them. I think that's where a lot of programs 
falls short is you get them for the short amount of time and then you're back out unprotected without support where we're going to be there through it all through the good days and the bad days through the babies being born (laughs) through the broken legs pandemics and the whole nine yards (laughs) yes yeah the pandemic is a big one recently (laughs) obviously (laughs) oh gosh which I'm so glad none of the clinics had to close down for any amount of time you all were able to continue being open and serving your clients and everything yep the federal government regulates methadone and so they let out a blanket exception which allowed us to give additional take-home doses to patients during the pandemic that wouldn't normally qualify so that we could keep them socially distanced and safer longer than the eight-point criteria and the time and treatment regulations by the federal government. The things that they have to qualify for to get more and more take-homes and not go to the clinic and such. Right. Methadone clinics are built on a reward system. The longer you're in care and the better you do, the more take-home doses you get. And so the reward system is built right into the program. But during the blanket exception, we had some laxing of the time and treatment rules. Gotcha. Nice. Very much needed. And I'm sure that was very helpful to have at least. Yeah, it was wonderful. So thank you so very much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. That was really fun. Of course. Yeah. Thank you as well. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stigma's Toll. All references will be available in the episode description. Please share this podcast series with anyone who you believe may be interested. Please feel free to send me a message either on my anchor.fm profile page or through the link in the description. Please stay tuned for the next episode.